In this episode, we're talking with one of the grandfathers of nature play and adventure play, David Sobel, who gives us some great ideas on suggested outdoor activities for different developmental stages and also chats about some of his most recent research on the differences between children who attend indoor classrooms versus outdoor classrooms. Welcome to Raising Wildlings, a podcast about parenting, alternative education and stepping into the wilderness, however that looks, with your family. Each week, we'll be interviewing experts that truly inspire us to answer your parenting and education questions. We'll also be sharing stories from some incredible families that took the leap and are taking the road less travelled. We're your hosts, Vicky and Nikki from Wildlings Forest School. Pop in your headphones, settle in and join us on this next adventure. Hello and welcome to the Raising Wildlings podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Farrell. Today we are so very fortunate to be speaking with David Sobel, whose writing has helped to shape the place-based education movement in the United States and right around the world. He's a proponent of nature-based early child education, which essentially just means getting children outside to play and learn in the natural world and in their own communities. David has worked with the National Park Service, the Children and Nature Network, numerous colleges and universities, a diversity of zoos and aquaria, nature centres near and far, independent and public schools in remote British Columbia and in inner city Boston. But he now lives in New Hampshire and one of his favourite things to do is cold water swimming. But before we start, I want to tell you a little bit about a new recommendations platform that we've just started using called kit.co. We get emails all the time asking us about what tools we use or asking us for the name of a book that was mentioned here on the podcast. So we decided to put all of our recommended products and books, etc., all in one place. Now, full transparency, this is an affiliate program. So if you do click on a product and purchase it from our kit.co link, then we do get a small, and I'm going to say <laughs> very small, kickback. And we'd like to thank you in advance if you do ever choose to do this. If you hadn't noticed, we're going through a bit of a phase of trying to automate our business wherever we can, because for an outdoor business, Vicky and I spend an incredible, ridiculous amount of time behind the screen. And the longer we spend behind these screens, the more we see and hear and answer the same questions, which is totally cool because we really, really love helping people out because we know ultimately that helping people out, and especially adults, means that we're going to get more children outdoors. But it does take up a lot of our time, particularly when we're both trying to homeschool our kids. So we need to automate some of these things wherever we can. So a one-stop shop for recommended products where we get a small kickback for putting them all in the one place for ease of access for you all seems like a really good idea without us putting ads on our website or something like that, that we would really rather not do. So anyway, from here on in, if you're looking for a book that you've heard on the podcast or a tool that we're using in our programs or anything like that, you'll find them at kit.co, that's kit.co forward slash wildlings. We'll be adding the link to all of our future podcasts and in our Instagram link tree too. So again, thanks in advance if you ever do use that. It, it just really helps us consolidate everything and automate everything. And, you know, we eventually hope that the kickbacks will mean that we get paid for our time to do that. But now let's chat to one of the original Nature Play Warriors and Advocates, David Sobel. Welcome to the show, David. How are you? It's great to see you. It's uh, we're, we're days and nights and weekdays and getting times mixed up. That was my fault. But um, it's 11 o'clock at night here and you've just started work. 
Yeah. When, when I got the invitation yesterday, I was trying to figure, I was trying to recalculate in my head across the international dateline and it was, I couldn't quite do it. No, look, I obviously couldn't either. <laughs> I'm uh, in my pajamas and Ugg boots under this, if I'm honest. So re- ready for the evening. So we're wanting to do something a little bit different at the start of our podcast. And David, you're the first person we'd like to test this out on. Would you be willing to be a guinea pig? And I promise it's nothing drastic. Sure. So Guinea pig away. Excellent. See, he's a risk taker, I can tell. We're firm believers in storytelling, as you are, and placemaking. So we we think it helps us become and remember that we're all human and made of the same things and need the same things to survive. So instead of us introducing you, it's really simple. We'd like our guests to introduce themselves, but we're going to put a little spin on that. And we'd like you to tell us about the influence in your childhood, people, place, things, that helped shape who you are and led you to your chosen career path and even perhaps where you live now, if there was a reason behind choosing where you are now? Well, I always say that I had um, negligent parents when I was growing up. <laughs> um, Fantastic. And, uh, you know, so my, my parents were divorced when I was young. I lived with my mother. My mother had a substance abuse problem. Mm. Um, and she would, and prior to that, she just, was a kind of working professional. So she wasn't around much. Um, there were, my grandmother was around, but she didn't really care. So basically I had a free range childhood. So I attribute my commitment to uh, children and nature issues uh, as a function of my free range childhood. And I, and I lived on a beach mm. um, on Long Island Sound in Connecticut. And it was suburban, but still a little bit wild. And so I had the ability to go off and be anywhere. Uh, I spent a lot of time in salt marshes and in mm. Phragmites jungles and in old abandoned farms and exploring the haunted house and the <laughs> abandoned fields behind the haunted house. And so I was all over the place. And I feel like that's where I bonded with the natural world. So that had a lot to do with my professional commitments, I think. So if, if you wouldn't mind, uh, if you could let us know, your audience, uh, what, what you're working on and uh, essentially just retelling our audience what you're doing. And this is the first time we've done this. Usually I just go in and use your bio and spit it out. Right. But it, we're just finding it's so much more human for people to tell their own story. So perhaps if you could just go back and tell us about how you got into your career and uh, what you're working on now. I started my career uh, being trained as an elementary school teacher. And then from that, I started a little uh, preschool and kindergarten in Harrisville, New Hampshire. That was in 1972, almost 50 years ago now. Um, So I spent three or four years as a basically preschool kindergarten teacher. And then uh, it was a lab school for Antioch University. And so I gravitated into teacher education Mm -hmm. uh, with a focus on developmental psychology and environmental education. And essentially I did that for about 45 years. Mm -hmm. Um, it It was a good thing for me. It allowed me the freedom to do other things than do teacher education. And 
uh, allowed me to write and continue to work with kids in different ways. And now I am mostly retired and still doing research on uh, nature-based early childhood education and still writing <laughs> different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Currently, I'm working on a on a backroads biking guide to New England. <laughs> uh, Fantastic. <laughs> So that's that's what's kind of keeping me busy now. Uh, <laughs> most recently, been involved in uh, research on comparing children in uh, nature-based public preschool programs versus traditional preschool programs in the same school district in Minnesota. Ooh. Ooh. I don't go there very often, but I'm working with somebody there, and that's been, it's really interesting to try and quantify some of the benefits to young kids that we talk about all the time. Mm. Uh, we talk about them in qualitative terms, uh, but we're trying to figure out how we can quantify the difference between what happens if you put your kid in a nature-based preschool program versus a traditional preschool program. Oh, I think our audience would love to hear more on that. Are you able to expand more on that for us at all? Or too early? Yes. So uh, we've been, I've been in this line of research for about the last eight years. and the focus question has been to respond to the question when parents ask, well, this looks great, but what's going to happen when my kid has to go to public, (laughs) you know, conventional kindergarten or conventional first grade, Mm -hmm. right? Is my kid going to be ready? So what we have found is that and using traditional metrics for literacy and math, there's not much difference in whether a kid goes to a nature preschool or a traditional preschool. Mm-hmm. So in other words, all that time outside doing free play doesn't affect their development in terms of literacy and math. What we're now looking at more closely is concepts of resilience and executive function mm-hmm. uh, because the early childhood world is somewhat pivoting to realizing that the development of resilience and executive function in early childhood is more important and is a better predictor of long-term success than early, liter- than early literacy and math. Mm. So we just did a study this year during the pandemic um, where the teachers assessed children on um, – Uh, resilience factors. We used a traditional early childhood metric and teachers in the beginning of the year assess their kids using this metric. And then at the end of the year, they assess the kids. And so the data looks like the children in the nature preschool had developed many more and higher resilience factors than the children in the traditional preschool. Most Mm -hmm. interesting because it happened during this uh, time when there's a lot of stress. So resilience mm. is essentially children's capacity to respond to stress in appropriate ways. And it looks like there's a significant difference in how the young kids develop, the nature preschool kids develop resilience factors. The more interesting corollary to that is that we wound up actually dividing these teachers up into three different groups. The nature preschool group where the kids are outside, you know, 75% of the time. 
the traditional group where kids are outside, you know, maybe 10 or 15% of the time. And then there was a, what we call a nature light group, teachers that mm-hmm. were kind of in the middle where the kids were outside, you know, 33 to 50% of the time. Mm-hmm. And so the results actually look like they go across a continuum. Most benefit for kids that were in the nature preschool function, mm-hmm. some benefit uh, for the kids that were in the middle group and less benefit for kids that were traditional. So it really does look like there's um, there's a direct cause and effect relationship, potentially a cause and effect relationship between mm. outside programming and development of resilience factors. I'm not surprised. We um, we went into lockdown again, gosh, was it last night? Last night, we're only three days at the moment, so it's very short so far, but we were in the forest at the time when we got the news with the children and they didn't have a care factor in the world. They were too busy, right. very present, having fun. So where, it's, where it's, are you located, Nikki? We're in the Sunshine Coast in Queensland in Australia. So right. it's, we, we're, and most of the country has gone into a lockdown at the moment, some short, some long um, for a very tiny amount of cases, but I won't get into that at the moment, but um, right. our programs are closed down. So I can't wait to see your research <laughs> because anecdotally, and I know it's anecdotally only from my perspective, uh, it's it does. It, it, it makes our children far more resilient. It makes them calm. It helps them de-stress. I can see it every day that we work right. down there. Yeah, and it's been interesting in the United States to see how much the pandemic has increased the understanding that having children outside is valuable. Mm-hmm. So lots of early childhood and elementary programs moved kids outdoors to limit the uh, viral transmission. And then they got kids outdoors and they realized, oh, Oh. kids are happy. (laughs) There's less behavior problems. (laughs) And there's less less behavior problems. And and we can actually teach math and reading and writing out here. Mm. There's got to be silver linings, doesn't there? So let, let's continue on with that. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about ways and, and practices that parents and educators can support childhood nature play and exploration so that we can reap those benefits of children having connection with nature while they're outdoors? Yeah, well, the first thing parents can do is conscientiously cultivate the child's relationship with the natural world starting from, you know, toddlerhood. We have a uh, 16-month-old granddaughter and now a four-month-old grandson. Mm. Uh, But with the granddaughter, the parents have been exceptionally conscientious in terms of regular outdoors time. And the dad takes uh, Greta, who's the granddaughter, to a nearby stream basically on a daily basis. Mm. And she plays in the gravel on the edge of the stream and in the water when she's here, my wife has her constantly outdoors and mostly in the yard at this point. And so it's clear that this child is not fearful of the outdoors at all, mm-hmm. uh, prefers being outdoors, and is uh, starting that early process of bonding with the natural world. Mm-hmm. So for older kids, you know, I'm always encouraging parents to find nature preschools as an opportunity for their children and encourage them to understand that, no, this is not risky. Mm. Uh, No, uh, this is not going to, this is not detrimental. 
in any way. In fact, it's beneficial and will make their children happier, healthier, and smarter. Mm. Can you talk to us about the the differences you see in children that are exposed to nature? I shouldn't say exposed. I don't even like that language. Connected right. with yeah. nature on a daily basis compared to those that aren't. Yeah, well, the, uh, for one, you know, there's a lot of good research on physical development, mm. right? So children that spend time in natural settings as opposed to indoors or even as opposed to being on playgrounds, mm-hmm. uh, the kids that are in natural settings are much more physically active. And so it's, it's going to turn out. I don't know that there's good quantitative research yet, but those kids are going to have better physical development. Mm-hmm. So even just in the course of a year, there have been studies that show that kids that spend time in natural settings compared to playgrounds or indoor settings have better sense of balance and better coordination. Mm. And so much of early childhood development is about the physical development and the development of coordination and balance and, Mm. uh, you know, aerobic capacity and nature preschools are a good counterpoint to the obesity epidemic Mm. that's kind of emerged around the world as a function of kids becoming little couch potatoes. (laughs) Um, so, so physical development should be clear that everybody thinks that that's a great idea. Mm. Uh, there's the whole uh, the whole bonding with the natural world in early childhood and elementary years is clearly related to the development of environmental behaviors and values in adulthood. Mm. There has been comprehensive research on that correlation. Um, so, if you want your kid to be environmentally conscious and uh, behave in an environmentally conscious way, the bonding with the natural world is valuable. Mm. And then there's that whole sense of what we've just been talking about is resilience and executive function, the capacity to make decisions for themselves, appropriately assess risk, be able to self uh, soothe or Mm. take care of themselves during times of stress through uh, engaging with the natural world. That's another thing that's going to be beneficial. Yeah. There's just, there's so many benefits. How do we speak to parents and educators about, uh, risk? You know, that's I'm definitely one of the reasons people, or people, some people would choose not to come to our programs, but we're very open about what we do. We do fire, we do knives, we do all of the things in the safest way possible. And our injuries, I'm I'm an ex-high school teacher. I saw far, far worse injuries on the school playground in high school children than I do down with our kindy age children in our forest. So how do you you have any advice for us about how we, I don't want to convince, how we educate people about the benefits of risk? I think the big turning point for me I think I owe this to Claire Warden, mm. um, was when I started to understand the whole risk-benefit analysis yeah. uh, function. So you know, many behaviors are inherently risky, but they are also beneficial. So what we tend to do as parents is only, only assess the risk and not trying to assess the benefit of the risk. Mm. So So the analogy I always use with parents is you have your child playing soccer or football. There are lots of inherent risks in having a child play soccer or football, 
But what you've decided here is that the benefits, the physical development, learning team sports and sportsmanship, all those things outweigh the risks. So therefore, you're going to allow the risk here because there are benefits that develop from it. So you have to have the same attitude of a risk-benefit analysis towards children being in a program where they're learning to use knives safely or they're, you know, climbing trees safely, is that, yes, there is some risk, but there are lots of benefits and the benefits outweigh the risks. If you put this in the context of all the things that they allow their kids to do on a daily basis right? It's, Mm. they will understand or potentially start to understand that the risks, the mild risks are worth it. Mm. There's a term at the, at a botanical garden that runs a nature preschool program in the United States. They talk about safe danger. (laughs) I've always really liked that term. So that what we're advocating for is safe danger and, you know, Mm. without any risk there, there's no learning. Yeah, this is a hundred. Absolutely. And I think we see that again, as a high school teacher, I've spoken about this in the podcast before, so I won't harp on about it, but the resilience levels in our teenagers, the anxiety and mental health issues is there's this gap that seems to happen between early childhood and then high school where they've had, they're expected to make this giant leap, but they've been given none of the tools or the, the time to be independent and test out these these risk-taking or decision-making tools for themselves. Every decision's made for them, you know, and risk-taking is prohibited. So how do they learn these things until we throw them a set of car keys and some friends? <laughs> I wrote a chapter, a chapter in one of my, or an article in one of my books. Of, this book is called Wild Play, mm. Parenting Adventures in the Great Outdoors, is about, is entitled Assessing Ice. And mm-hmm. it was about uh, one winter when my daughter was right around 12 or 13 years old, when um, we had an early freeze and no snow. Mm-hmm. And so usually what happens is all the lakes and ponds freeze up and there's about a week of good ice skating and then it snows and then there's no ice skating anymore. This year it froze up and then it didn't snow for about a month. So we had this unusual opportunity to actually go and skate on probably a dozen different ponds and lakes Mm -hmm. in this area. And it was an intention of mine while we were doing this to teach her about assessing ice Mm -hmm. because, you know, ice skating early in the season, there's a, there's some significant risks involved, right? i.e. falling through the ice and into freezing water. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but unless you were willing to assume some risk and learn how to measure risk, then you couldn't skate in these interesting places. Mm-hmm. And so it was this very conscious training on my part to get her to understand that some risk is appropriate, too much risk is not appropriate. There are some times when it's good to say, okay, we're going to try this. And sometimes to say, you know, no, this is way too risky. We're not going to do it. And mm-hmm. I knew uh, that it was, or I, I hoped that I was preparing her for the risk assessment of, you know, when some kid's drunk and says, you know, I'll give you a ride home. <laughs> you, know, you can say, you know, thanks, but not tonight. Not many risk benefits to that one. Right. <laughs> I feel like 
some of our sporting cultures do that really well here in Australia. So surf lifesaving or, or nippers, we call them here, when we they go in and it's it's a real community and real team sport and they go in and they assess the surf and they learn about rips and as they get older and they progress, it then becomes their turn to help coach the younger ones on the same thing. So I love that about some of our, our team sports and cultures, yet other ones it feels as if the coach makes all of the decisions. So I'd love to see more of a progression of youth mentors coming up in our, in our sporting ranks and not just captains and whatnot, but, yeah, I, it's, it's great to see in surf life-saving, but it's missing. Right. I do feel like that gap's missing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Would you, can you talk to us more about wild play and, and perhaps how we can engage with nature at different stages with our own children? Yeah, I'd love to do that via a story rather than via kind of a higher order, right? <laughs> so one of the, so I, this again comes from the Wild Playbook. One of the things uh, that I challenged myself to do when my kids were young, between about you know three and thirteen, say, was to always be willing to respond to the "Daddy, tell us a story." <laughs> uh, request with a okay, I'll do it. And it was in the beginning, it was really You're a hard. Saint David, <laughs> Daddy, tell us a story, right? It was like, oh no, no, I'm too tired. Okay. And then part of that was trying to have the stories respond to the significant events that were happening in their lives at that moment mm. or in within the past week or that kind of thing. So one story I like to tell is when my son woke up in the middle of the night one night, he and I were in the same room. We were trying to break him from uh, sleeping in the same bed with his, <laughs> with his mom and I, and uh, he wakes up and he's, he's absolutely uh, scared, uh, you know, deer inside, deer inside, right? <laughs> he's screaming. And so he had had this dream about a deer coming inside and it was really mm-hmm. scary for him. And so the next day, uh, when it was kind of story time, I told a story about a deer, little boy wakes up in the middle of the night. He's really scared. The deer comes inside. The deer is uh, quietly comes over to where he's sleeping and says, you know, come on, get on my back. I'll take you for <laughs> an adventure. And the deer is, is very uh, friendly and um, a soothing. And so he takes the boy off they go into the woods. He, it's a father deer, actually, a, you know, a, a stag that had taken him out, takes him. The boy gets to play with the fawns in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the mother deer brings him back and puts him into bed. And so this was all part and parcel for me of trying to, in storytelling and in all the other stuff that we were doing, uh, develop this kind of friend re- friendly relationship between flora and fauna mm. and the kids. I love that. Uh, and so that, and the storytelling was a really integral part of that. And I often tell parents that if they, uh, the one thing that they should really work on is developing stories that are uniquely based on their own family experience and preferably involve uh, the natural world as the context for the story, mm. uh, uh, because it's great in terms of creating 
a kind of sense of family coherence and uniqueness. And it's one of the ways in which you develop the relationship with nature. And, and language is so important. I mean, it's a bit of a joke here in Australia that every animal here tries to kill you, but even even bad humor aside, there is that negative undertone to it, obviously, that really sets our children up to to be frightened of them unless they do have an adult that has the is really positive about these critters and the flora and fauna. So we often have children coming down into the forest and you know we we do our snake stomp and we're checking around and there are some that are frightened because their parents are frightened and they haven't formed this positive storytelling. There's not not been any positive stories about these creatures. It's right. always scary for them. So I lo- really love that. that, that yeah. In this other recent book of mine called The Sky Above and the Mud Below, which is about, which is a collection of basically articles by early childhood educators around the United States that are trying to naturalize their programs. There's mm. one article about an early childhood program in Alabama where the where there are lots of poisonous snakes. And so one of the programs that they did was to do a fa- they do regular it's either monthly or quarterly family programs, you know, where the kids and and the parents come in the late afternoon or evening and they did a snake program mm. with the parents where they were passing around different, you know, passing around different non-poisonous snakes to help the parents get over <laughs> their fear of snakes. We and do the so, same thing and oh, you know? for the yeah. exact same reason. And I can't yeah. tell you how many parents have come up to me and said, thank you for curing my snake phobia. That oh, it's yeah. yeah, because like you said, they've, they've not had that opportunity either. So until right. they see it and feel it and have their own sto- positive stories to tell about it, isn't it, that we carry that fear. I'm not right. sure we'd be ready for crocodiles or jellyfish yet, though. I'm not sure how, <laughs> how we do that. <laughs> Sharks. <laughs> but it's, that also accentuates the point that what you're trying to do in programs is not just provide a natural world experience for the child, but you're trying to change the family culture. Because really, if you want kids that are going to be, you know, bonded with the natural world, you have to change the culture because they spend most of the time with their parents. Mm. So you want, I appreciate programs that spend a lot of effort on uh, family and parent and family engagement. There's another program in Santa Barbara, California, where uh, it's a program that mostly works with foster children or children at risk. and they. Uh, often do a family camp out weekend, mm, great. right? And and that's a program that mostly serves Latino Latino um, parents, and a lot of those parents and grandparents and caretakers have never camped out, right? Yeah. And so it's the first time they're ever actually having a, a sleeping under the stars experience. So mm. same idea. I um, camped in a swag for the first time since I was a child. We we camped a lot as kids and we were thrown in the swag and left to build our resilience, and we did. And it was the first time in probably 20 years that I slept in a swag under the stars. We, we tent and we and we travel and whatnot, but, gosh, that nostalgia and that feeling of being under the stars again was I was so grateful for my parent, to my parents for giving me that right. opportunity as a kid. Yeah, right. it was, to be feel safe and secure under the stars, I, I think, a lot of us don't ever have that opportunity. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
I have a favorite, another favorite story from that book. There's a, a, a nature, a nature preschool program in um, Victor, Idaho. This is, mm-hmm. uh, so this is kind of in the mountains, right on the Western side of the Tetons. So mm-hmm. um, forest wilderness, this little town of Victor, Idaho, you would assume that it would be really easy for them to take the kids outside and have a nature playscape, but it's not. So they have to put the kids on a bus once a week to take them to the national forest. And in the place that they are in, in the national forest, it's possible, sometimes likely that they're going to encounter either bear or moose. (laughs) So they have to have, they have to have big animal drills. Mm. So what do you do when the big animal shows up? And then, (laughs) (laughs) and so then when the kids are back in the classroom, they have to do a little work, a little drawing worksheet to illustrate uh, the rule or the situation that they learned about when they were out in the forest. And so there's a great graphic illustration of a child illustrating the big animal drill. And there's a teacher and there's a child and the big animal that is in the picture is a unicorn. (laughs) (laughs) And I love saying that I love, I love it that there are still places where children can encounter unicorns in the woods. (laughs) And you know what? I bet they're going in there imagining that they're just, just waiting to stumble across a unicorn. That's exactly. I love that entrance into a forest with children when, you know, they're this high and they're looking up at that canopy and the wonder in their eyes. And you can only imagine what's going on in their brains. (laughs) Now to wrap up, we have got some rapid fire questions. You're ready for them. Yeah, I I looked at those questions. I'm not sure I'm ready for them, but I'll try. (laughs) And that's why we have to make them rapid because some of them are are a little hard. So what's your favorite book of all time and why? Or because I know that's very difficult. It's like picking a favorite child. What are you currently reading? Yeah, my favorite book of all time is probably The Magus by John Fowles. Mm. And um, I've always been disappointed because I've always been, I've been looking for a book that engaged me as much as that. And um, I've never found it. And so it doesn't have anything to do with kids in nature. (laughs) Sometimes we need that escape. (laughs) But it does have to do with a young man on a Greek island and getting wrapped up in this incredibly complex, strange, not understandable uh, theater of uh, the absurd. Mm. And it's all designed by a puppet master that's essentially trying to educate him about what virtuous living is about. Mm. But the intriguing part to me was the, was the mystery of, of the natural world and the landscape and him getting wrapped up in it. And so it actually it contributed to the fact or the practice, this was in relationship to storytelling, mm. that we constructed uh, adventure theater activities for my daughter's birthdays mm. that often involved you know, mysterious creatures in the woods that she had to encounter and interact with. 
It sounds fantastic. I have to say that question is really for selfish reasons. I've got some of the best book recommendations yeah. <laughs> from asking it. All right, number two, I've switched this one up too. Where was your favourite childhood nature space growing up? Out of You mentioned some at the start, but did you have one that, you know, if you'd had a bad day that you would go to as a child? Um, the place that comes to mind is what I refer to as the mica mine, the mica mine. So and the, it was the glittery mica mineral. Yeah, mica the mineral. Yeah. And it was um, if you walked down the beach from where we lived, there was a a kind of a seawall of cement, but then behind it was this all these chunks of really large rock, and there was lots of mica mm. in those rocks. And so I spent a lot of time by myself collecting mica and I had my own little mica collection and of course I was always looking for the biggest sheet of mica that I could find it's um, something we're just bowerbirds at heart aren't we shiny yeah, right. shimmery the bowerbirds bower you actually try and use mica <laughs> I don't they, they, they like shiny things shiny and blue yeah. things so right. <laughs> <laughs> it'd be, it would be interesting to find out I'll see I've got a friend that knows a lot about birds I'll see if they know uh, right <laughs> All right, this one's our loaded question. If you had to choose just one thing to change about the education system, what would it be? Yeah, I I would change the amount of time that is dedicated to outdoors learning. Mm. And um, so we've been, there's a lot of work that this group of uh, Antioch University faculty members and uh, colleagues at work in different schools and settings around New England are uh, focused on right now is how to translate the push to outdoor learning mm -hmm. and the development of outdoor learning facilities that happened at schools to try and figure out how to make that continue or persist into this next year and subsequent years in schooling. And mm -hmm. so uh, there's a lot of interest for starting to try and convene professional learning communities of principals and school superintendents that have this disposition and create support groups so that they will uh, have a group that, you know, helps them uh, work together to figure out how are we going to make outdoor learning a priority. Any tips there for, for people listening that would like to uh, give their principals a little nudge in the I was going to say right direction. My, my bias believes the right direction. Right. How do we change the system? Yeah. Um, I mean, one option is to actually provide them with concise versions of the literature that mm. now says that outdoor learning is valuable and um, will not compromise uh, children's academic performance. And there are a lot, there's a variety of those things that have come out. There was a great Frontiers in Psychology article that looked at all the different research on nature and learning and synthesized it. And mm. that's a really good article to give to school leaders. Mm. Um, and then there's some other simpler one and two page things. The other thing is to organize parents to demand this kind of commitment. Mm. So we've got a handful of examples of schools where there was a prominent nature preschool and then the parents were sending their kids into the public school system. Yes. And they said, we, how about, we really love this nature preschool. How about nature kindergarten? So it was a district 
a school district in Michigan that we documented where the school leaders saying, okay, we'll, we'll try this nature kindergarten <laughs> stuff. And then, um, you know, they were going to offer one section of it. And instead they had to offer three sections because there was that much parental <laughs> interest. And then nature kindergarten led to nature first grade and nature first grade led to nature second grade. Mm. And there've been similar things going on in new England elementary schools. So it's parents organizing parents to say, Hey, this is what we want. We just need more squeaky wheels, don't we? Yeah, the squeaky right. wheels, you know, that they, we might not want to be. And I think sometimes I don't think it's a God complex like we have sometimes with doctors, but there is this similar almost childlike fear of going in to see the principal at your school and asking them for something, yeah. I think, as a parent. Yeah. And I think it'll, it will take parents to really push back and, and demand it. Like you said, it's that nature preschools are doing it successfully and we're seeing the benefits. And then our parents have got nowhere to send them here right. with, with similar similar benefits or similar programming. So, right. yeah, if you take one thing from this podcast, everyone, it's it's be a squeaky wheel. <laughs> <laughs> David said so. <clears throat> and to finish up, where can we find out more about your work and your most recent book, David? Uh, the my, I have some web pages that are at davidsobelauthor.com. Fantastic. There are a lot of my articles that you can read there and then links to all the books. And send to your principal's parents. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on and for working out the time zone and just being here and giving your time. We have a really great um, childhood mentor here called Maggie Dent and she talks about lighthouses and I think the people we have on here are not only lighthouses for me personally but for the community that's listening and then like we said we might encourage two squeaky wheels and that passes on and you know that could be whole classrooms of children so it it can sometimes be thankless work I know doing the the same old chat sometimes but we do really appreciate it good pleasure (laughs) Excellent. Thanks so much. David is one of the original Nature Play grandfathers. He has been teaching, educating and researching the benefits of Nature Play longer than many of us listening here have been on this earth. So for me, it was a real privilege today to chat with someone who still wholly and solely believes in the benefits of their work after so long and we here at Wildlings wish him nothing but the best for his I was going to say retirement but he's certainly not quite retired and aren't we lucky because what you didn't hear in the interview is that he fell off of a ladder a few days prior to this interview and quite badly injured his hand so I'm wondering if he's probably better off back in the classroom continuing to lead our future educators back out into nature We should all be so lucky to have a mentor like that who, even in his retirement, is jumping on podcasts like ours to help continue to spread this message to get more kids outdoors. I just I just am so grateful that there are people like this, you know, the the lighthouses that when we spoke to Maggie Dent about at the start of the year, these people that continue to light the way for us uh, and advocates for our children. So a big thank you for David. It feels really apt after our chat with him to suggest that maybe you'd like to head to our website and download our free 30 days of adventure play printable at wildlingsforestschool.com forward slash free dash downloadables. 
It'd be really nice, I think, if we could help continue David's incredible legacy and, you know, at a minimum, get our own children outdoors more often. You can tag us and let us know how you're going with your 30 days of adventure play on Instagram. We really do love sharing what our Wildlings families are getting up to all around the globe. Until then, stay wild. Thank you.